From the time we are born, our lives are crafted with stories. Stories we hear, read, and stories we tell ourselves. These stories shape our lives, our future, and our potential. Sometimes, a single story can pivot us from a downward spiral to a transformative paradigm shift. Our struggles in life are rooted in the stories we choose to believe. It's a delicate balance between being realistic and maintaining hope for a brighter future. But unfortunately, many people end up abandoning their dreams all because of self-imposed beliefs and a limiting mindset. The Greatest Story Podcast exists to bring to light the untold stories that inspire, empower, and urge you to discover your purpose so that you can craft your own success story. Welcome to The Greatest Story. I was honored to talk to a man whom I met not too long ago. He is originally from Detroit, Michigan, but now lives in Sacramento. He calls himself a deplorable, Easter worshiper, and a violator of community standards. He is married and has two daughters. Currently, he teaches apologetics and is very involved in the Sacramento community. So, without further ado, here is James Jenkins. When I met you at Pete's Coffee, yes, I, man, I don't know, like after I left, I'm like, man, I would love to continue the conversation. Oh, man. And then I saw you at the, at the dinner. In that Lewis. made my day. You, that made, that, I have to say, seeing you made my day. Because I told my wife about you. Because I, I met so many people in different places that are gems like yourself. And you just start a conversation with them. And next thing you know, you're like, I met, uh, there's a local musician named Jim Martinez. I met him like that. I can't remember what restaurant, but we started talking like across the table. The guy was from Detroit and he's, and I've been, I went to his, uh, not this Christmas, but he does a, he's down in Sacramento and he's, and I got a lot of his music on my iPod now. Oh, wow. And he's a jazz pianist kind of like, but he's a music director at Christ Community Church, I think it is in Sacramento, I think it is. But yeah. And, um, and so I listened to a lot of his music and it's really, really kind of jazzy kind of, and, uh, and, and some worship type of music that he does. And he puts on a concert usually Christmas time. So that's awesome. Great pianist. So. You're from Detroit as well. I'm from right? Detroit. Yeah. Well, if you can talk a little bit about your background, yeah. what we do you start? do? Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're on. We're, we're rolling. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm up here yakking. <laughs> so a little bit about my background. Yeah. I know you're, uh, you're, uh, the oldest of seven. I'm the old, you good memory. I'm the oldest of seven. Um, uh, I, I, like I said, I grew up in Detroit in the cold. I hated it. And, uh, I still do. I was, uh, I grew up in, and I call it a ultra Christian environment. Um, and so much so that my mother had signs all over our car, like, uh, stickers, yeah, stickers and signs all over the side Mm -hmm. of our car. You know, God says, repent John three 16 on the back. Things like that. And and so it would be like, you know, 100 below zero in the winter. And we had to walk to school. And my mother would go like, hey, well, I'm going to drive you guys to school today. We'd be like, oh, no, mom, we'll walk. We'll, we'll walk. You know, we were embarrassed to be seen getting out of our car. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but uh, that's, that's how uh, 
I, what I grew up in and, uh, and, uh, uh, big, big families back then, a lot of cousins, uh, a lot of, uh, uncles and aunts and things like that in Detroit. Um, uh, I, uh, gravitated towards, uh, well, first of all, I, my mother had me reading a lot of books when I was younger. Back then they called them, uh, they call, they called them black history books back then, but history, but I call it history now because I think it's a part of American history. Yes. I I was reading things like Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington and things like that when I was, I took a big interest in that. I was always been a big reader. So that, uh, kind of set some foundation, read Abraham Lincoln and things like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, didn't think, uh, too much about politics uh, back then. Um, got to high school. One of the things I knew I wanted to do was become a professional baseball player. That was my uh, passion. It still is one of my passions that I still do. And that was all in Detroit? You went is, to high school yeah, in Detroit? Yeah, growing up in Detroit, yes. Okay. And so um, I did a little bit of college for a couple years and kind of wandered because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wasn't making it in baseball, so I didn't have an, any idea of what I wanted to do. Um, I'm, I'm summarizing some of this hit a uh, low point in my life when I lost both my parents by the time I was like 22 and, um, end up, I couldn't sleep. So I ended up dropping out of school, came, I was, uh, 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 back home and the doctor told me I had, I had high blood pressure and that you need to take this medicine. And he says, I said, how long do I have to take this? He said, for the rest of your life. So this is the first time I went home and I read what was on a bottle of something. I have a cousin. I used to tease him because everything he bought food-wise, he would read everything. And we'd, I'd be in a hurry to go somewhere. I said, come on, man, we got to go. And he's reading everything on a box of cereal or whatever. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's I went, what That's when you were 22? This is, yeah. Right, right, well, yeah. This is about when I was 22. So wow. I, I, uh, I, uh, I looked at that bottle and I said, there's no way I'm taking this stuff for the rest of my life. Look at all these side effects. And so I decided to join the gym. I joined the gym. I start working out. Stopped taking the medication when it ran out. Um, and uh, I looked at workout as my medicine and uh, got myself in really good shape. Went back to the doctor. Nurse says, have you been taking your medicine? You know how you have a follow-up appointment? I said, uh, no. And she started kind of railing on me. And I said, and so I didn't say anything. I just took it. And she put the cuff on me, took my blood pressure and said, took it again. She says, your blood pressure is down. She says, what are you doing? I said, I'm working out. She says, well, you better keep it up. And I says, that's my plan. So uh, I view, I'm, I'm, uh, I'll be 65 in a couple of months and workout has been my medicine of choice. And so I've, uh, I've, uh, uh, I've been a gym rat, gym junkie. So I would never, I would never say 65. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a junkie. And uh, I, so uh, I went into, uh, I started working out. I started get, I got a job at the gym that I was working out at mm-hmm. uh, a few months later, going to the guys say, Hey, you, you should, uh, consider, uh, applying for a job here. I said, sure. So it was selling memberships at the time. I didn't know diddly squat about selling. And, uh, so I was in a bookstore one day, like I frequent a lot. And, uh, I came across a great book. I just happened to open up the pages of it. And the words just jumped off the page and grabbed me. And I was like, what is, this book is not just any ordinary book. This book is about like life, you know? And so I got to have this book and the book is called the greatest salesman in the world. I don't know if you've read it. Um, is it by who's the author? I Mandino. Oh my goodness. Yes. So that book was instrumental. And once I finished it in two nights. Wow. 
So it was not only instrumental in um, uh, finding out that, you know what, this is something that's deeper than me and, it, and, and it's something that I can make uh, my living off of and I can be good at it because I love people. And so I dedicated my, my life to sales. It was also instrumental in guiding me back to Christ. Wow. And so I won't spoil the book for anybody, but it was only about 100 pages long. So I worked my way up in that company. I worked my way up to be a manager. I worked my way up to be an area manager, which moved me out to California. And um, and I'm very proud to say I used to make sure everybody on my staff had that book. Wow. And I even get guys who I managed 35 years ago that worked underneath me that tell me, James, I still got the book that you gave me and it's been instrumental and you really guided, helped guide my path and, uh, and, and set a great example for me. Wow, so I'm very... Very proud of that. That's great. A couple other things. I've been married for 27 years coming up next, not this Friday, but on the the 16th, two days after Valentine's Day. February 16th. Yeah. I'll be married 27 years. My wife, Carrie, and I, we have uh, two daughters, 23 and 26. Our youngest one is finishing up in May in music therapy down at UOP. And she'll be done. And uh, so I just, I, like I said, been in sales all this time. Uh, another big factor, I, I, uh, I had a younger brother that used to start started challenging my Christian faith when I was um, about maybe 20 years, 15 years ago. 15 years Yeah, ago. he started challenging my Christian faith with all these, uh, um, he's about, he, was, he was about 10 years younger than me. He's passed away now, but uh, two years ago. But he, uh, he, he was hitting me with all these things that I'd never heard before. Like, hey, the Bible has been rewritten a million times. It's fake. Uh, science have disproved all these things. Miracles are not possible. And I was like, no, 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 it really is. Like, you know, and I realized the implication that what he was saying. Mm-hmm. So that led me to Christian apologetics. And I started looking for answers in books like I typically do. And uh, I read one, again, another book that really transformed my trage- trajectory, which is by Dr. Frank Turek's I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And uh, a fantastic resource. My That book, I still have the original, assigned by the author Frank Turek, is worn out. And anyway, once I got that book, I started unraveling. It, 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 it equipped me to unravel a lot of the things he was saying and show that they were false. Mm-hmm. And then I understood that, hey, you know what, Christ- Christianity, we're so called to give answers in First Peter 3, 15, 16, and do so of gentleness and respect. I had to always remind myself about the second part. When you, you know, imagine two brothers' eagles clashing, it's hard to do it in gentleness and respect. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, because of my sales background, and my sales skills, it apologetics kind of came naturally to me in that sense. God equipped was equipping me, and so I actually went through a course in 2013 with the instructor of that book on teaching it. So I teach out of that book as a, my as my primary source for jumping off into apologetics. That led me to a lot of other a lot of other authors and books and teachers that I adopted and uh, start speaking for different other organizations, defending the life of the unborn. Uh, speaking on uh, uh, at uh, uh, with uh, uh, Life Training Institute, Scott Klusendorf, who I seen debate down at Berkeley. So I started wow. attending debates and all these things to um, uh, understand all the arguments. So I encourage a lot of people and teach. I teach a class right now at the Point Church once a month on apologetics. 
And so, so it's live. It's, it's, in, it's in, live. In, yes. Live. Nice. Nice. And um, and uh, I try to help Christians and equip them to understand that what we believe is absolutely true, and that we have all the bases covered. And the Bible is true. And I and I teach them how to present evidence that the Bible is true. And um, and it's led me into so many interesting areas and so many interesting conversations with oh, people yeah. who are non-believers. One of the other things that else it, it did as I grew in that area, and I'm still growing, and I still is is always something to learn. Oh yeah. And uh, you learn anyway. One of the things I, I I understood with my brother was that um, at the end was, to my knowledge, he never came to Christ before he. Um, uh, he was actually killed. I say he passed away, but he was actually killed. But that's another story. But to my knowledge, he never came to Christ. But I understood that the things that he were presenting to me, these challenges, held no intellectual um, rigor or grounding. They were all built on um, uh, sand. And I exposed them for what they were. And then what I wasn't... what I was dealing with was not an intellectual issue. It was a heart issue. It was a heart issue. It was, yeah, an emotional issue. He was mad. He was mad at God. Once mm. I peeled back the layers, it took years for me to do that. But um, now you have to, so in apologetics, you have to understand what you're dealing with. Why is a person, uh, why are they railing against God? You know, what happened? And so you got to ask them questions to peel back these things, and understand where they're at. And so uh, that took me to another level, but um, I, I understood it was it was an anger issue because you, you got to remember my father died in nineteen, and my mother died at twenty two, so he was ten years younger than me. So mm. that affected his life differently than it affected mine. So that led us into all kind of debates. We debated on politics. We debated on all these things, and uh, so it was a sharpening of. M- iron for me and uh, to get to understand all these things because they're all intertwined and they're what they call worldview issues, uh, how you see the world. Yeah. And um, and so those are the types of things that kind of got me where I'm at yeah. right now. So, so, so James, yes, so when you are talking to someone, let's say maybe they're an atheist, uh-huh. right? Or they have a, they have something that's really pushing them to have this point of view that there is no God and stuff. Mm-hmm. How much is, if you were to say like, how much is it something that you can say and like, you know, bring a, a good discussion or some facts or or whatever, or how much is it the Holy Spirit doing the work? Um, that's a great question. I, I think both has to be at work. I, I think the Holy Spirit starts in the preparation because, um, what I found is you have to be, I have to be prayed up and I have to be in the right state of mind. Otherwise I start taking these things personal mm. and what, and that's what I can't do. I have to be a seeker of truth, but I would say it's, a, it's a little bit of both because again, you got to be armed with the Holy spirit because sometimes they'll launch personal attacks at you. And so, um, in order, and as a Christian, as a man who's filled with the Holy Spirit, um, I have to be above, I have to be seeing and looking at this from above the fray. For me, it's a search for truth. And 
So I don't let my ego get in the way because, you know, I could be wrong sometimes. And uh, I have to be willing to make the um, uh, admission that, hey, you know what? You're right. I was wrong about that. But, and so they respect, usually most people will respect, you'll gain their respect when you understand when, when you're wrong or that we, you know what? I don't know the answer to that question. That's a great question. And I don't know the answer to it. So I would say it's a little bit of both, but it also takes a lot of preparation because I spoke to a good friend recently, uh, Paul, and he said, um, he's one of my best friends growing up. And uh, we were talking and, and he, he he's in my neighborhood where I was at. I know mm -hmm. his family, but he's trying to hang around the neighborhood guys. Great guy, by the way. But he's never dug into these questions and he got the neighborhood guys because they know he's a Christian and those are, and, he, and they kind of beating him up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so I talked to him recently I says, and I said, uh, I won't mention his name, but because he might listen to this, <laughs> but he knows he's a, he knows I love him. But I started telling him, I says, look, I says, you need to start getting a couple books. And, and these might be at this time, at this point in your life, these might not be the guys you might not want to want to witness to because they see, they seen you at your weakest. Okay. So you might have to get and just start learning one answer a day and go buy a book about unapologetics. And if you learn one new thing about it, how to deal with one answer a day in one year, you got 365 challenges to Christianity that you can be equipped wow. to deal with. And I've got books on like, you know, all these answers. I got tons of them. And, um, and I say, I encourage people, Hey, get one. Hey, what's the biggest question? After a while, it's all, there's the big questions that are tough and there's the questions you hear every day. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you want to go here, but one of the big questions I think people have and one of the toughest ones that Christians struggle with and um, non-believers struggle with is why would a good God send a, send a, send, send a, uh, like my mother, she was a Christian. She died at 42. So our family struggled with that one. Why would God take her of all people? She trusted him and she died of cancer at 42 years old with seven kids. And uh, why would God take her? And we have to be ready to answer that. And why does God take babies? Why does God take uh, 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 what happens to people who don't know God? You know, mm -hmm. the Bible has all these answers. Shall I share some of them with you? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, this is fascinating. Yeah. So, so uh, I, I'll deal with a couple of them. Uh, examples, uh, for instance, uh, um, I start with a premise, by the way. The premise is, and we have it in Genesis, the world's broken and so are we. And I start, told this to my friend. I said, so the world's not the way it's supposed to be. Even the atheist knows this. He knows the world's, it shouldn't be like this. I shouldn't have to watch my child die. And so we have to acknowledge that. I shouldn't have to watch um, my mother die at 42 who trusted in God. But if we go back to the original premise that the world is broken and back to our Genesis. And sometimes we forget about these things that is right. The answer is right in front of our face and we read it a million times. Mm -hmm. So I, I put it in my terms, the world is broken. And, that, and then when they say a good person, well, according to the Bible, there's none good, not one. But wouldn't they say, well, God created the world. So yeah. why is God, why did God create a broken world? Man, it, it wasn't broken in the beginning. <laughs> it was paradise was lost and paradise was found. Genesis, God created, he saw, he saw that it was good. Man mm -hmm. sinned, sin entered the world, and we're suffering the consequences of the first Adam's sin. 
and and we're is paradise lost and at the end paradise is going to be found and we're in the middle of that story it's the kind of the way i explain it mm-hmm. and i says and we're all men are broken so where are these perfect people where are these good people and so all of us are broken i'm broken the only was one that wasn't broken and that was jesus christ yeah. he was perfect he died for our sins so uh uh and he paid, he paid the price for our sin. He's the second Adam, the perfect Adam. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I kind of explained it like that to him. And, uh, and, uh, uh, and, you know, there'll, there'll be some other objections sometimes that come up in between that. But, sure. uh, and, and sometimes the other one is, um, Hey, what about people who don't know about God? And I always say, well, Romans one has us covered. It says right there, it says, I'm paraphrasing if you don't mind. Sure. I should do it by heart. <laughs> But uh, it says, basically, God's revealed himself through the world. His invisible qualities are seen by the things he's made. His fingerprints are all over nature. Mm-hmm. So I, but God wrote two books. He wrote the book of nature and he wrote the Bible. Okay. And they don't contradict each other. So we can see him, even if you didn't have a Bible, we can see. And in that section, it says, so that men are without excuse. So at the end of the day, you're not going to be sitting up there, God, I really didn't know about you. He's saying basically, and he, Paul, and uh, uh, God speaking through Paul said basically, no, you don't get to use that as an excuse because you can look at the stars and you can say, God, somebody did all this. What's behind all this? What's behind nature? What's behind DNA? DNA is a, is a code. From all mm-hmm. our known experiences, codes come from minds. It comes from yeah. intelligence. Yes. So his fingerprints are all over nature. You know, you have a mind. Where does it come from? Um, where does, um, um, you know, w- one of the other things that comes up sometimes is people go like, well, I don't believe in um, anything that I can't see, touch, taste. Yeah. And this is called materialism. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that statement is immaterial. So it's self-defeating. You believe in a statement that you can't see. Yeah, you can hear it, <laughs> but uh, you can't see it. It's a self-defeating proposition. So it took me, an apologetics took me in all these areas where I recognize when people say things that are not true, that uh, they end up refuting themselves. Mm-hmm. If you say there is no truth, then I usually ask a question. Well, is that true, what you just said? <laughs> <laughs> and so by saying so, mm-hmm. uh, they're affirming that, there is truth. Yes. So, so even the denial of truth is an affirmation of it. This reminds me of a book. Uh, have you ever read Power Versus Force? Not yet. David Hawkins. Oh, my goodness. David so, Hawkins? Yeah. So you he, have to give me that before we leave. Yeah. He writes, uh, so he was a PhD and he wrote multiple books. But this one is basically about levels of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So he starts with like calibration of 200, which is like low, no, no, not 200. Like zero is where pretty much a person is like suicidal. Nothing you can say or do to help them get out of that. They're just, they're just done like they're, and then 1000 number is enlightenment. So he says that someone like Jesus, where he was just full of love, he wasn't afraid to die, you know, like he was like at the high, that's like the highest it's level. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. And then everything is in between. Uh-huh. The 200 number is the calibration for courage. So there is the power, he says power in the power category above 200 is the positive consciousness. Okay. 
The fourth is the negative consciousness. Okay. So things like bitterness, envy, um, regret, you know, all of this. So there's people. And when I was reading this book, there were some people that came to my mind who I know from my life uh-huh. that they're, whenever you ask them how they're doing, they always respond like, could be better or I'm alive. Like, like as if they're like, like they're just struggling. All this stuff is always happening to them. They're sick, right? Yeah. So he he writes in this book that um, depending on which level of consciousness we live in, uh-huh. we attract these things because those things come out from us. We attract that. It's like a law, almost like a law of attraction, but yeah. on a more deep, like it was really hard for me to read that book. Like I had to like reread multiple things and stuff. So it's, it was, for me, it was mind blowing because it really opened up. And he says that the courage starts, that's the first positive level, Mm -hmm. which is 200. And that's where someone has enough courage to like take, take a step towards something. Okay. Do something like begin to like change their life, their viewpoint. And then it's acceptance. And then it's um, reasoning acceptance. And it kind of moves on to, to all the way, all the way up to enlightenment. Okay. Very, very interesting book. Um, so it was. Yeah. I'm going to do some research in it for, <laughs> for, for you, Paul, to see what see what you got there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm trying to catch the concept of it and relate it to. to, to well, uh, he's saying that truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this experiment that he talks about. They do. So, for example, like he has one person come out and stretch his hand out like this, uh-huh. and he says, "When I push it down, resist." So when he says something that is true, then the person like is strong. Like his arm resists pretty pretty firmly. Yeah. When when it's something that's not true, then the muscle becomes weak. Interesting. Very very interesting. So it transfers over into the physical physicality. Yes. It sounds like yes. what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I know. It, like I'm I'm still very limited in my vocabulary because English is my second language. You're and doing stuff. pretty good. So pretty well. Yeah. So I'm may, I'm not really able to like explain exactly like these concepts, yeah. but they were. Uh, I mean, I understood them enough to say, "Wow, there is something to this yeah. for sure." Yeah. Um, and. Uh, uh, truth is, you know, one of the, when, when you understand Jesus being the embodiment of everything, every word that you think that's good, he is the embodiment of it is really, um, mind boggling. And, and, and also is mind boggling, uh, just throwing things out there to look at the things in nature that, reflects his fingerprints, the mm-hmm. intelligence. I don't know if you, have you, are you familiar with the cosmological argument? No. Um, I'll, I'll share it with you because sure. I think it's important because um, um, it's basically one of the, what they call great, there's about three arg, three arguments, I call them, uh, for that supports the existence of God. And um, as we describe them from the Bible, and uh, one, the first one is called the cosmological argument or the argument from the cosmos. Um, and then Paul, it goes to something like this. Everything that began to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. We know this from whatever, Big Bang. We understand this from the science that's come along in the last century or so from 
uh, Einstein to uh, Hubble's telescopes, which has documented that the universe is expanding. So if you reverse it back, it came from a, what they call a singularity, mm-hmm. and it came to being out of nothing. And so this is called a cosmological argument. So the uh, universe, had, everything that began to exist had a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has, has a cause. And then you have to determine, take a step further and say, what must that cause be like? And this is kind of like forensic science or just looking at um, Mm -hmm. um, uh, how it began and what the universe is made of. So the universe is made primarily of three primary things, time, space, and matter. So um, if time, space, and matter had a beginning, then whatever created it has to be outside of time, outside of space, immaterial. This sounds like the God of the Bible because <laughs> he's time, but it could be the God of Islam because there's only really three major religions that has a God outside of time, space, and matter. Mm-hmm. Most of them are pantheism or atheism, which is irrational. If the universe had a beginning. It had a beginner. Big bang needs a big banger. <laughs> and a big bang, big bang, bang, big banger has to be bigger than what it banged. <laughs> so I, anyway, I stole that from somewhere. But anyway, so so now we have, hey, we got a timeless, spaceless, immaterial being. Now we start adding on to that. We can show that the universe has extreme complexity. For instance, they call it the Goldilocks zone. We just happen to be living in that exactly the right place that, allows life Life. to be, uh, 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 to happen. And if we were 5% closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If we were 5% further away, we'd freeze to death. Um, If the expansion rate of the universe was a minute fraction faster, we're not here. Slower, we're not here. There's a number, they call them anthropic principles that that says, uh, oh, DNA. DNA is another one. It's a code. Mm -hmm. Codes, as we know, come from mind. So, so that whatever created this had to be timeless, spaceless, immaterial. Mm-hmm. Spaceless, immaterial. I'm talking too fast here. I haven't even had coffee. Um, hey, man, you're you're already r- running in the in the overdrive. <laughs> you got me wound up here. <laughs> but it also has to be extremely intelligent to create a code like DNA that's in all living things, the building blocks from it. And codes come from intelligence. Mm-hmm. Extremely precise to create the universe so that life it, it makes it just right for life. So all these factors are just right. If we're, we live on a really fine edge and the atheist, it takes more faith to believe that happens by chance or luck than to believe that an intelligent being did it. So, yes. so yes. that's called, so that's the cosmological argument. And, and you add on to it, the argument from a design, mm-hmm. a design needs a designer. Yes. So implies a designer. So and, he, and we're back to Romans 1. It says, we look at nature. And I, I talk to people all the time. Um, and um, some of them say, I believe in a higher being. And I said, do you know how, what a, uh, I said, I agree with you. There's a higher being behind this. I said, do you know how, how to know that that's true? And they go, no. And they go, let me tell you why. These are the things I explained to them. I says, this appears like the God of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And they go, wow, I never thought about it like that. Most people who are honest. And then uh, we add that to the moral argument. Morality is hardwired into us. Yes. And and the Bible states that, you know, uh, 
His law is written on our hearts. Mm -hmm. And for those that don't believe it, I always say, if you want them to want them to confess it, all you got to do is do something wrong to them. (laughs) 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 And they will admit, and it's not just an opinion Mm -hmm. because if you don't, if morality is not there, then it's just, we have just bumping around opinions that something is wrong, but they really know if I steal your wallet, that you really did something wrong to me. And I can, if, they, if, they, if they're an atheist, I can say, well, court, come on, there's no God. It's just your opinion. Yeah, it's just opinion. <laughs> yeah. So these are not just opinions that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so you can get somebody to admit that something's wrong. That's the one way that, that blows the cover. And it's an argument for God. There's a moral law. There, therefore, there's a moral law giver. And so I say it's hardwired right into us. So these are... Um, uh, three of the great arguments mm-hmm. that that shows that God exists. Yeah. And you can step further, and I and I I do this in a PowerPoint presentation that I do. You can step further now and say, well, okay, now we got, you know, a theistic God. A God is outside of time, space, and matter to create it, time, space, and matter, and morality, and all this complexity we have. Now, which one is it? Is it the uh, Muslim God? Is it the uh, Christian God and the Jew- or the Jewish God, which is the same God, essentially? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and then we have to build onto it. Then we have to show that the Bible is true. I said, well, to show the Bible is true, what do we start? I says, we just got to show that the New Testament is true. And the reason we show that the New Testament, I train students to learn that the New Testament is true, because if you prove that the New Testament, or at least lay the sound evidence that the New Testament is true, guess what? You get the Old Testament thrown in because Jesus, affir- Jesus affirmed everything in the Old Testament. Yes, yes. So we provide, ev- I provide evidence that the New Testament is true. And, and so... Um, um, and some of that evidence is we have what they call the manuscripts. They're early evidence. These are evidence. These are uh, what they call, um, uh, well, I'm going to start back. Step one, take one more step back. What we have in Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Mark Luke, and John is eyewitness testimony. Yeah. Okay. So when somebody says, well, um, I'll throw out an objection. Um, uh, these these guys were biased or whatever you want to say. You've heard it all. I've heard it all. Mm-hmm. But uh so I said, first of all, these are eyewitness testimonies. Oh, we don't know who wrote those, blah, blah, blah. They were written by somebody else. I said, well, they're either eyewitness testimonies or somebody who was dictated to eyewitness. And I said, so what kind of evidence do you think, what kind of ancient evidence is what I typically ask a skeptic is acceptable? Mm-hmm. Because you can't have a Kodak camera that took pictures back then and you like the things we have today. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people are, yeah, you got to show me proof or something like that. It says the best evidence we have from those times were eyewitness testimonies. What you have in Mark and Matthew, Mark and Luke and John are eyewitness test, eyewitness testimonies yes. to the rest resurrected Jesus and the, and Jesus's life and his ministry of three years. So that's the best evidence you got. So these, these are all alliterations of E so they make it easy to, to remember so these are eyewitness testimonies, yeah. guys who saw this happen. And uh, they were what they call early testimony. These happened within the lifetime of the resurrection they, when they were written. And how, how do we know that? Uh, the reason we know that is because um, the... Now, hey, now the cough... Now I really need the coffee to get to my brain here, Paul. <laughs> uh, the reason we know that is because... Uh, um, the destruction of the temple is not, it is written about, mm-hmm. but it's written about as a future event. And that happens in 70 AD. So if it happened, they were written after 70 AD, they would be looking back 
at the temple being destroyed. And Jesus prophesied, he said, when he said, before this, uh, this time period passes, he said, we're not one stone to be left on top of another mm-hmm. before this generation passes is what he said. So, so he's looking forward to the, that. So we know we have early, early testimony. Uh, we have eyewitness testimony and we have things like, um, um, embarrassing testimony. There's all kind of embarrassing testimony in the new Testament. What I mean by embarrassing is if you were to make up a story, if this was a made up story, would you leave in embarrassing details about yourself? I wouldn't. No. I'd be the hero. Yeah. Well, um, that's not what we find in the New Testament. We have all, and these are things that were pointed out to me, by the way, through reading and reading the book I was Mm -hmm. referring to. And these are, uh, so I give uh, uh, Dr. Frank Turk and Norm Geiser, who put this stuff together, credit for all this stuff. I just stole it. So just so you know, and, and I made it my own. But um, uh, uh, the embarrassing testimonies, we don't even think about. We read them all the time. And I read them for years and years and don't realize, like the women were the first ones to the tomb. Well, that's embarrassing. You look at things like, uh, 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 it's chock full of information like the um, the, the book is, like uh, the um, uh, the time number of times that Jesus said, oh, ye of little faith, they didn't get what he was saying many times. They doubted him even after they seen mm-hmm. him risen from the dead. They, uh, oh boy, it's so, so many so many pieces of embarrassing uh, uh, things that we don't even think about that when yeah. I started reading the book, I said, wow, that is. And here's the thing I always say, Christianity could have been over 2,000, over 2000 years ago, could have been ended 2,000 years ago with one little piece of evidence, one little small piece. You know what it is? I purposely stumped you here, Paul. Two thousand years ago, so that might, that, that was that, that yeah. has to do with Jesus Christ, his body, his, his dead body. body. His, yeah. If his dead body is found in a tomb, then Christianity is not worth believing in. Yes. So, um, and the reason that that this is where the early testimony comes in is that somebody could have written or taken these writings of Matthew, Mark, and Luther, and John and say, no, these guys are lying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll show you where the body is at. And let's just end this crazy cult called Christianity right mm-hmm. now. And it would have been over, yeah. game over. Yeah. And so, uh, so that gives us hope that uh, Christianity is alive. And we know what would happen if he was body was in the dead, it, it was in a grave. It would mean that he would be a pro- false prophet because he said he was going to rise from the dead. It would mean that... Uh, uh, that uh, he's 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 uh, along with Muhammad and everybody else buried all the other prophets throughout history, Joseph Smith and whoever else you can name. Mm-hmm. So, so these are type of the conversations that I get into I see. and this type of evidence, and I go in deeper. So I, see, fun, I see your va- man. You're so good. I think I I don't I don't <laughs> see how you can't convince somebody. You know that uh, you know Jesus Christ is the Lord. And yeah. Um. So, do you believe that America was founded on Christian faith, Christian principles. Uh, it was absolutely found on Christian principles. Absolutely. So another one of the books I came across, I'm a story of books that I came across. Let's go. Uh, 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 and, and here's a great thing too about apologetics. I told you about Frank, Dr. Frank Turk. I came across his book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Mm-hmm. That led me to other books. And that led me to Neil Maman's book called Jesus Was uh, uh, Involved in, Jesus was slash is involved in politics. Why aren't you? Why isn't your church? When I read that book, um, it kind of got my head around where I should be politically. Okay. Uh, 
and and not in the sense that um, it tells you who to vote for. It lays out the foundation of America, what you were alluding to, and it laid down the principles and why they're why they are there and why they work better, and uh, than uh, secular I- idea I- ideas. Yes. <laughs> I need some call. I, I, I want you to go more. a little bit deeper in that because yes, I've heard a point of view where church, mm-hmm. community, mm-hmm. and government mm-hmm. are separate entities, se- separate parts of of the whole universe, for example, or the world. And the role of the church mm-hmm. when it comes to government, politics, can you go into like, what? how do you see that? Thanks. That's that's a good question. Um, I'm going to start down that road with saying that a lot of people. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it another way. Our Christianity, unlike a lot of religions, we take everywhere with us. We believe God has a hand in everything, and 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 that we are to be salt and light on this earth. And so, there's some kind of way some. I think bad ideas have gotten to church or Christianity. It says, oh, we shouldn't be talking about these things because the government's area is over here. Give unto Caesar what Caesar and, and what God, what give unto God mm-hmm. what is God's. Well, guess what belongs to God? Everything. And so we have to have a hierarchy and of what things are important. I think the first government that God created is the family. And yes. um, and I'm, I might be jumping around here a little bit, but... I want to say that today we we have a lot of churches that are are um, afraid of jumping into the political arena or saying anything that relates to the political arena mm-hmm. in the sense of thinking we shouldn't be involved in these moral issues. Number one is abortion, for in, for instance. But uh, I want to back up for a second um, and and just tell you a little story that might illustrate some of this. I talk was talking to a gentleman and he. Um, and, and my gym, and uh, some kind of way that becomes my missionary field a lot for whatever reason. God puts people next to me. I'm working out. We start talking, and he was a Christian Christian brother, and um, we start talking, and uh, um, and uh, he said that he was more on uh, uh, what are the issues we we're talking about. And he said, "Well, I don't think that people who are Republican are on the right. I don't think they they." Uh, um, they push against taking care of the poor is kind of what he said. Mm-hmm. I might be paraphrasing that a little the Republicans bit. are pushing against taking care of the yeah, poor. Yeah. Okay, okay. Programs that take care mm-hmm. of the poor. Yeah. And so what I said to him, I said that I don't see it that way. I said, well, I see it as a difference between, I think both of us, if you're on either side of whether Republican or Democrat, or what do you want to call them? Progressive or whatever. I call it conservative versus uh, liberal, liberal, uh, liberalism, but I said the conservative value is a biblical, as a closer to our biblical um, uh, world worldview. Mm-hmm. I says because what it says is, and that's what we believe: the the church, the role of the church is to take care of the poor. It's not the government. And what I, I, I in about a, three minutes, I made a case for him, and he actually, to his credit, listened to me. I said, "Look," I says, "Christians and most religious people." Giving is into our worldview. We are to give tithe, 10%, and we offerings, things like this. We built cathedrals around the world. 
We built cathedrals here. We sent missionaries around the world, I should say. So um, if you tax us less, we'll take care of the poor. And that's a better way to take care of the poor. Over here, when you want to take care of the poor, the government wants to take care of the poor, they have to create an agency that they have to hire somebody to oversee it, to oversee it, to raise our taxes. And it's not really, um, um, uh, now I'm really blanking out. All this l- lack of sleep is catching up to me. It, it, it's, it's, it's not really charity because they're taking from somebody over here or wherever. By force. By force and giving it to somebody. The person who receives has an allegiance to a nameless, faceless, bureaucratic government. Over here, I think it makes a better citizen because the person who helped them off the street, who clothed them, who fed them, um, and was a good Samaritan to them in in that Mm -hmm. sense, um, now they owe allegiance to the church and God as the one who picked them up and got them out of the gutter. Mm-hmm. So I made that argument to his credit. He had never heard that. And I, and so this is the design. So what we find today is we have an increasingly growing government. Yes. And it's pushed this area. And now the government has pushed into our domain. And mm-hmm. even Christians are bought into the government doing, Hey, I don't, and if that's the case, I don't have to do anything, but pay my taxes. Mm-hmm. I don't need to give. I'll give indirectly or let the government do it. Mm-hmm. So, but these taxes, if you think about them, I know I can tell you know this, they never go away. No. They're always there. We're, I, uh, I read somewhere. Especially at, in California. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and I, I read somewhere recently, Paul, that they're, we're still paying for the uh, um, the New Deal back in the 30s. In the 30s? I, don't, don't, don't run. Don't take that to the bank yet. <laughs> but I heard that somewhere. I'll do I some research I haven't on researched it. it yet, but they said some programs that we're still paying on and uh, from, from back, you know, 80 years ago. What about all this, this debt that it's piling on? And I've, I'm hearing these point of views where our kids, our grandkids, they're eventually going to be responsible for this. Like all of this debt is actually going to be piling on, on them. I mean, it's it's it, it's it's uh it's it's a big problem. It's a it's a more it's a moral issue. I, I'll I'll put it right up there with a lot of other things. I don't think it's um up there with abortion, but it's a it's a it's a it's a moral issue. We're depending more on government, and we're just we're just putting off something, and um uh and 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 chewing off. If you if you if you go by proverbs, <laughs> it has so much wisdom in it. I don't. I, you you can't go wrong on these things, but uh, we've uh, we've dispensed with biblical principles regarding uh, money, and we are. I mean, where where this is going to go, I don't know. But I really believe that uh, there needs to be a revival in this country. The Christians have to wake up. The Christians uh, has to be as as Martin Luther King called. We have to be the consciousness of this nation, and we have a lot of Christians. Um, there's there's a great book I read by uh, Francis Schaeffer. I don't know if you're familiar with him called A Christian Manifesto. It was written in 1982, and it was I read it uh, uh, late last year, and it was I couldn't put it down. I underlined a lot of things in it, but it was written in 1982, and he's talking about everything that's happening today. And there's there's been a humanistic 
worldview that seeped into every area of our life and has creeped into the church even. And I even have heard pastors and leaders of churches say things like, well, I don't think we should be talking about X issue or this issue mm-hmm. or, uh, and uh, we're supposed to just stay over here in our lane. Meanwhile, uh, government is all in our lane, oh, yeah. all in our lane. And every, like you alluded to, everything, every one of these things costs us taxes. And if if we keep on getting taxed, we're moving to- closer towards what we, we talked about uh, uh, one of our earlier conversations, socialism, where mm-hmm. the government owns every doggone thing and yeah. they do everything for you. And this is what we're moving towards. And um, if the churches don't wake up, and we don't wake up. I heard a statement that uh, um, Pastor Farrington down at uh, Destiny Church made oh, yeah. this last Sunday. And he's, it was a quote actually he gave from Mario Murillo. And I said, think he said something like, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I might butcher this, but it said, uh, America, uh, Christianity can survive without America, but America cannot survive without Christianity. Mm. And Christians, in this book, Christian Manifesto says, the reason the things are the way they are is because Christians have either been silent and not being the conscious of the country and, the, and, and, and a voice out in the culture challenging the lies, the, the things, and running for offices and getting involved that we're going to have people who don't have that worldview and it's more human-centered, man-centered, than God-centered, and I'm not talking about a theology, mm-hmm. I mean a theocracy, I'm sorry. Uh, we're talking about Christian principles that are built underneath guiding us to a better country. Yes. And so the founders, they were wise men. God were definitely guiding those men. They got it right. Mm-hmm. The further we get away from those principles, the worse we're going to be. Yes. I don't know if you've seen this. There was this Wall Street article last year that was written. And I actually want to pull up this stat because this made me, I actually talked about it at my Rotary um, Club meeting. So the article said that America is rapidly moving away from the values that once defined this nation. Yes. So here are the five main things that it, uh, it was written here about, so patriotism. Between yeah. 1998 and 23, 2023, uh-huh. people who say these values are very important to them. So in 1998, 70%. Mm-hmm. In 2023, 38%. That's a big Patriotism. Jump. Yeah. Religion, 62%, 39%. Mm-hmm. Having children, 59% versus 30%. That's mm-hmm. 50%. Yeah. Community involvement from 62% to 27%. Yeah. But the one thing that had increased as far as values, money. In 1998, 31%, 2023%, 43%. So when you say money, in what aspect uh, is he talking like as about? Like as far as probably... Having it as a high value? Yeah, yes. yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like considering these things, how you value yes. them. Okay, you know? gotcha. So... Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're definitely going in the wrong direction. I know last time I read our birth rate was down. Um, when you look at the fact, um, I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to roll over a little bit to the even, uh, uh, well, I'll, 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 I'll do the black community for instance. 
um, we've been about 13% of the population. Mm -hmm. Comprise uh, right over 30%, about a third of abortions. Since, since Roe v. Wade, 1973, we've aborted over 63 million babies. And, uh, and so these things are playing a lot into Social Security. You know, you think about it. We don't have, we're running out of funding. Yes. Yes. Government took some money out of it uh, uh, a while back. But even so, we don't have the popul People are living longer. That wasn't taken into consideration. But also, we don't have the young people that's paying into it enough to support the old people. I do believe it's the greatest Ponzi scheme ever. Ponzi scheme ever invented, by the way, Social Security, because it's really... <laughs> the, the, the more I look at it, the more problems I see with it as I approach the age where I'm probably going to get it. Think if God, God, God let me live a couple more years. Well, isn't it supposed to run out like in oh. 2037 or yeah, something like that? It's, it's running out. And, and you, you look at these factors that played into it. You, you look at, we have less kids being born for various reasons. We had the women's movement destroyed the family values. We've had, abortion. We've had, uh, what else? Uh, the welfare state where government was paying, uh, families to, uh, more money if a man wasn't in a home. So we have all these factors that play into, um, you know, it's kind of like, you, you know, uh, I call it unintended consequences. When you mess with something, you think, oh, you know, I think about one, I says, you know, why didn't God get rid of mosquitoes? You know, nice <laughs> God got rid of mosquitoes. <laughs> And I don't know what mosquitoes do, but I guarantee you, if we figure out or what the benefit of having them, but I figure if we figure out how to get rid of mosquitoes, it'll probably throw the whole universe out of balance. Yeah. Because yeah. it's something that they do. I don't know what it is, but God has a plan for everything, I believe. Well, oh yeah. You know, like when, when you buy a piece of property and say, if there's like a pond or a creek that's running through it, um, and like you, the environmental agency is going to get involved because... They got to make sure that you're not destroying a mosquito or some other insect yeah. stuff. But speaking uh, about the values, yes, you know, this there, there's this thought that I recently had, and I'm going to share this with you. Please, yes. You know, sometimes I look at what's going on right now and I'm thinking, it, seemed like, it seems like some people are just trying to destroy this country, mm -hmm. the world, like why, what's going on? I'm, I'm trying to, I'm asking myself, I'm thinking about it. And then this occurs to me, I'm thinking like, okay, so if, if they destroy these values where you don't, you don't believe that there's God. So you don't believe that there's life after death. Mm -hmm. If because of abortions and all of this LGBTQ that's being, this propaganda that's being pushed, you don't have any children. That's another factor I left out, but yes. Then you don't have any future. So why would you care about destroying or why would you care about making this world a better place when you know that once you are dead, there's no life. You're, you're worm food. Yes. Yeah. It's a great, that's a great question. And, and I've actually put that to people. I said, well, if there's no God, why should I be good? Why should I cheat you with respect? You know, uh, why is this wrong? These are questions uh, atheists has no, they can answer them, but they have really no basis for answering them because there is no reason. And the answer is 
I, why should I care if nothing, if I'm just dead when I'm leave here? But you get back to now the apologetic question is I tell people that yes, I have a great reason for believing that it's life after death because a man named Jesus, who is a historical figure that we know existed, one of the E's is extra, extra biblical evidence as well. We have writings from outside the Bible, you just maybe think yes. about, um, that, that corroborates what was written in the New Testament. So we have a man who we have an eyewitness testimony who was dead three days and came back from the dead and is still alive. So he predicted it and he did it. So that's why I believe there's life after death. Why do you believe there's not? You have to deny that Jesus existed or there's something else that goes against that evidence. And I think the atheist is cornered if we do our jobs and demonstrate that it's unreasonable to say that the Bible and the New Testament got this wrong. So that's why I believe there's life after death. Yeah. And and there's there's a whole image, there's all these immaterial realities that we have as well that we can show that and demonstrate that we're not just physicality. Yes. Yes. And so even things like personalities, even dogs have personalities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so personalities, people have uh thoughts. We have dreams. Those are those things are are uh, they're 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 immaterial. You can't touch them, taste them, feeling. You can experience them, but mm -hmm. they're not material. Yeah, a thought is not a material thing. So we get all these things that we can we can say, where do where do these things come from? And so that leads me also to believe that as evidence, as there's something we have that's more than just physical. Yeah, and there's yeah. morality. That's an, that's not a physical thing. It's a it's an uh, it's an immaterial thing. So these are, I look for opportunities to, to show that, uh, and, and you know, here's the other thing, Paul, even, even if, even if when we screw up, you know, it's like, it's an affirmation of scripture. Even when the eight say, you know what, I'm not perfect. That's the Bible said, that's an affirmation of that. I'm not perfect. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not, I'm not making an excuse for it, but Hey, you're going to fail yeah. and make and, and do something immoral. And so am I, you know, I said, the difference is. I got a savior <laughs> and, and, and he's got me covered mm -hmm. and, 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 and there's a higher authority than I. Yes. And when you have authority, you, you act differently when you, and, and, and you go back to the man in the home. I use another stat. You got me wound up here way too much. <laughs> uh, 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 you giving me the bully pulpit over here. Uh, sure. It's, uh, you got a man in the house. You have a, 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 authority figure that mm -hmm. you know if you do something wrong he's got a belt that's got to straighten you out when you get home that 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 makes you a different act different you know well even that they they're trying to take uh, away right yes 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 <laughs> yes <laughs> and and the fact how many uh young uh, kids right now are growing up um or have already oh. grown up without a father figure i think that's that's oh, huge it's it's it's, it's 75 percent of long-term prison inmates grew up without a father in the home. Uh, and and uh, uh, somewhere in my phone, I keep a lot of those stats, uh, but it affects everything from young girls uh, looking for uh, the love of a father that they didn't get 
uh, going all kinds of places uh, that they sh- really shouldn't be uh, looking for that love that they didn't get as a as a as a little girl mm-hmm. uh, causes them to do all kinds of things. You can go on and on and on about the fatherless uh, what do you call it uh, 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 fallout from not having a father in the home. And it is uh, oh another thing another factor I didn't bring up is uh, no fault divorce, which uh, 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 Reagan signed. He says one of his biggest mistakes was uh, signing that bill for no fault divorce. It used to be hard to get a divorce, and yeah. it should be hard. Uh, our society, sh- if if we want to get back on track, uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be very difficult. It's gonna be an uphill battle, and I almost think that um, what I see is I think. It reminds me, you ever heard of the story of the kid who gets in the liquor cabinet and gets caught by his dad? Uh, it's, it's kind of an analogy story. It's not something probably that really happened. It probably does sometimes. I think I heard it, but go ahead. But a kid goes in the liquor, liquor cabinet and, he, and he's sneaking you know, a, a drink and his dad catches him. He's okay, you want to drink liquor? Go ahead. And he tells him to go drink it and mm-hmm. the kid gets sick and he throws up and he goes, now, you, what have your lessons have you learned? Uh, from drinking alcohol. Oh God, I don't want to do that again. I wouldn't too much of that. So I think there is that factor that's going to play into this uh, equation that maybe we haven't figured it out, but I think it's, I think we're st- starting to see some cracks. Uh, I'm going to go political here for you don't, if you don't mind, which is uh, in this, uh, uh, this president we have right now, I think people are finally starting to realize, cause I've heard him fight for the last three years and tell me about his health doing well things about how the economy is doing well, binomics are working and all these things. And I go, wait a minute, I got inflation through the roof. I've got, I'm paying uh, double for my gas prices. I'm paying for groceries. Look at all these prices and you're telling me I'm doing well. And, and, and you keep spending, you give it out these stimulus packages, which cause the inflation and all these things are happening. And you're telling me we're doing great. My 401k has been down in the toilet, all these things. And you keep telling me I'm doing well, that the world's on fire and, and they blame the previous president. And I said, you know what? I said, and, uh, you know, I, I, I said, wait a minute, hold on a second. I says, if the pre, if this, this president didn't do anything, then I think you can blame it on the previous president, mm-hmm. Donald Trump. I said, but he did, he did a lot. In the first day. He, yeah. First he, day. He, first day. He just, yeah. The borders. Yeah. Open the borders, all these things. And so a lot of this is common sense. And I think a lot of people don't have it. And I think they end up to getting their information and believe in the news. Another great stat I heard is only 3.4% of the media is made up of Republicans. I don't know if you heard that in the last. Oh, yeah. Yes. And what about teachers, too? Uh, teachers, I forget what that number is. I but think it's probably teachers really and, low. and universities, that's like 90 something yeah. percent of. Um, it, yeah. It, so, it's it's interesting. I thought like when we when our family came to America, it was 1993. Okay. Um, I remember back in Ukraine, we I was eight years old, and I have 12 siblings. Wow. But three were born here in America. Yeah. My parents had 10 back there in Ukraine, so we came to America. They already had 10. Wow. Kids. My dad was 33. My mom was 31. Where are you at in this? Uh, I'm third. I'm the firstborn son, yeah. but third. I have two older sisters. And I remember we would get together in a room and we would already know that we're going to America. And whatever we knew about America was based on what we heard, what we read, what our parents told us, what other people said. And in in our imagination, you know, America was this just this paradise, you know. Yeah. 
obviously when we came here, you know, there was this shock because, you know, we came with nothing, just some bags of some stuff, which we don't even, you know. Did you come into California? Yeah, we came to Sacramento. Yeah. Okay. And we had to pretty much start from scratch, but that's the risk my father took because he had everything in Ukraine. He had a property, just brand new house he built, brand new barn, but he saw, and he was against moving to America at first. And then as he was praying, he's a Christian man. My both parents were born Christian, Christian family, and they were praying. And then all, all of a sudden, my dad changes his mind and he thinks, hey, you know, there's going to be a better future for my children in America. Yeah. So that was the main reason why he decided to come here. How were you again when you when you came? Home? I was eight. Eight. Okay. Got yeah. It. Thanks. Yeah. So we came here. We had to start from, you know, from scratch. My dad started working after a few months, you know. So I remember we were getting um, welfare for like a few months, right? Uh, we came, just came. We don't have nothing, you know. So we were getting like 700 or $800 a month in 1993. Wow. We're living in a 900 square foot home, two bedrooms, one bathroom. And my parents started buying like canned stuff, dry salami, packaging it up in boxes and sending it to Ukraine. Wow. And my dad was saving enough money for for a van because obviously we all had to uh, fit in, in you know, some car. kind of vehicle. The Volkswagen. <laughs> yeah. Bug. So what I'm saying wow. is I when we came to America, like I remember like the way, and my, my dad also can, can attest to this, that America was different than what it is right now. Oh, yeah. And we're talking about 30 years um, went by. And even like the way people were, how people were on, on the roads, you know, um, there's so much that has changed. And I think that during this time, like the 90s, maybe even early 2000s, I think a lot of people um, were very, they were doing very well. Mm-hmm. Things were calm. Uh, we had peace, peaceful time. P- people were doing well. And I think that during this time, it's probably the time that really created, you know, like there's the saying here that I uh, wrote down, good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. I like it. So it's like a cycle, right? And I think I, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking maybe that's what happened. Like we had all this good, good time and people kind of weakened, let their guard down. They were not looking into like, you know, what kind of people are getting into the schools, universities, but there was a plan. There were these people that were like strategically going in there because there was a plan and, you know, people were asleep. And now you know, that time created weak men. And that's why I think we're up, you know, this, I'm, I consider this to be a hard time yeah. uh, that we're kind of facing right now. And I think, you know, we're always like, like I'm a parent, right? We have two children and we're, we're trying to make things easier for our kids. We're trying to say, Hey, you know what? We want you to have you know, better this because I didn't have this. So I'm going to give you this, you know, I'm going to give you a boost here. I'm going to pay for this. And I, and sometimes I think, is this the right way to do it? Yeah. It's, there's an irony, like we, we want to make it easier and stuff, but we, we have to realize that making it easier and giving everything to them 
it's not going to exactly. be a good thing in long term for them. Yeah, and it and it, and it, uh, I, I'll put a caveat on that. It depends on the kid too. Uh, yeah, but in general, I think you're you're dead point straight on as far as what you just said. It's dead point on. It's like um, um, I did a study, uh, not a deep study, but a deep a dive a little bit uh, recently into the car business being from Detroit and what caused it to crash. Mm-hmm. Did a little reading. And uh, it was a very similar story to what you just described. It's like the car industry in Detroit, uh, being from Detroit, if you got a job at Ford or Chrysler or Chevy, um, uh, it created a very good middle-class life for a lot of uh, people in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And what happened was they got so top-heavy fat with executives that it and it made us easy prey for the Japanese to slip in mm. and undercut um, and and take advantage of it. Let's just call it that, because uh, I think that what what I read was the average in in the '60s and probably through part of the '70s, the average per hour pay was like twenty dollars per hour, <laughs> twenty dollars an hour for when you got in the, when the factory. Well, Japanese were paying their workers. Uh, three dollars an hour, and wow. and and uh, so people wanted cheap cars, and the Detroit got kind of fat, mm-hmm. and so they had to compete, which is a good thing. And I think what you're talking about is, hey, you know, like give you a similar thing. Like I again, growing up in Detroit, um, I um, we didn't have a lot of money either, like what you're talking about, and we were in a 900 square foot house, but it was six of us, and my my other little sister came along later to give us seven. But yeah, with two bedrooms and my grandmother and, and and so lived there as well. But anyway, when I wanted something, I had to go get it. I had to go shovel snow and knock on doors because we didn't have the money. If I wanted a new baseball glove, me and my brother, we'd get our, get our shovels and get our boots on and we'd go knocking on doors. Hey, Miss Jones, would you like us to shovel your snow? Yeah, just go out here and do it and I'll pay you afterwards. You get, you get your snuffles, start shoving. We had another couple. They said, hey, don't even ask. Just when it snows, just come on over and we'll pay you, you know? So that I delivered newspapers. I bust tables. I did everything, uh, every kind of little odd job you could probably name to, um, you know, stock boy in a grocery store, at corner drugstore. Uh, I, I did it all. And, uh, and uh, even when I first got out of college, I worked in a fast food restaurant for a couple of months until I started working at that gym. Well, because that was the only job I could get at the mm-hmm. time. So, uh, work ethic, people. A lot of people think they owe they're owed something, and uh, and uh, when you have that attitude, uh, you are it creates an attitude of, I think of uh, I'm gonna call it laziness. It, it might mm-hmm. be a better word for it, but I'll use that term. But um, or complacent. Mm-hmm. The work ethic. It's it's. I think it's still there for a lot of people, and and and, and I want to say there's still hope. Because I, I think we're going to hit a wall and people are going to realize it. And you know what? Like the kid who went to the liquor store, liquor cabinet and got at his daddy's liquor. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, my goodness, I'm sick of this stuff. And and you see it. I see some some cracks in the dam of people breaking away from this form of government that uh, keeps pouring taxes on top of us and trying to do uh, uh, do everything in in our society, you know, to. Uh, places that they sh- we shouldn't be spending money and on things that we shouldn't spend money on. You know, this the student loan f- quote forgiveness thing. Mm-hmm. It's not really a forgiveness. I I told somebody. I said it's not forgiveness. They're taking money from you and I who work every day 
and they're paying off somebody else's debt. Yeah. And I said, and that should be only the bank can forgive them. Only the bank, because mm -hmm. that's who owes them the money. Yeah. I said, and what this guy is doing, when I say this guy, I mean this president is doing, hey, the Congress already told him not to when he's doing it. I know we're going all over mm -hmm. the place here. But I said, what he's doing is actually taking my money to pay off your debt. And then he's trying to buy your vote with my money. And and uh, um, and uh, it's not really charity. I said, and I said, so I, they wanted me to celebrate this. I said, I can't, a relative of mine, he says, oh, my friend had their debt laid off. And I says, I can't celebrate that because the money has to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. That's the deal. It has to come. Where is it going to come from? And that's a question that many people don't ask. And critical thinking, uh, I think it'll lead you to a more conservative point of view when you start asking questions. Yes. Where does this money come from? Jump a little further, I'll say, even on the news, watching intake of news, people start asking, why uh, is this playing on the news? Why is what I'm seeing important? Why is this important? And why is this issue the one that they're putting in front of me versus another issue? How do they decide that this is, and my, my take is, and I tell people that news exists on ratings. They yes. know exactly what you want to see. And, and I tell people, usually on the opposite side of the political spectrum from me, I say, they know exactly how to play on your emotions. And they're going to play two things that we know gets everybody, most people, emotional about. Donald Trump. Let's go ahead and, get that, and talk about the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. And they're going to talk about racism in America as being a huge problem. You know, when I went to school, and I specifically remember sixth grade, my best friend, his name was Andrew Collins. He uh -huh. was black. Man, he was such a comic. We always laughed. Like we would like, you know, everyone was reading book and we would like sit down across the room and like we would like look at each other and we would crack jokes and we would laugh. And I'm growing up like I, everyone is the same for me, right? Like, yes. like black, brown, whatever race, it doesn't matter. You're a cool human. I love you. Let's go, you know? And all, all of a sudden, like all of this is being like, like stirred up again. Yes. What do you think about that? Um, I, I have a lot of thoughts about it. <laughs> That's a big old tee up for me there. What you said, what do I think about it? Um, I, I, I think Martin Luther King had it right. He said, we should judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And that is, a, um, um, I think, a biblical perspective in the right perspective. And we've gone the opposite. And what's so ironic is seeing people with uh, pictures of Martin Luther King on their walls and in their homes, buying into this diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, which is very problematic. And they're looking for what they call equity. And the difference between equity and equality, I don't know if you have studied this, but it's equity is um, um, giving everybody this, a, 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 a different in uh, the same ending point, mm -hmm. you know, and favoring certain races because they're, uh, somebody in certain jobs or because of their race. And, um, uh, uh Dr. Frank Turek, I listened to his podcast a few weeks ago. He says something very powerful being a baseball guy. He says today, if Jackie Robinson, who, who, uh, uh, broke the color line in baseball were playing under today's uh, 
baseball under the equity versus equality program, let's say mm-hmm. or ideology, that he would get four strikes and five balls versus three strikes, which everybody gets. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to them, they would give him four four balls. And they said, no, he played on the spl- same playing field as all the whites and proved that, he, that a black man could play in the major leagues as just as well, just as talented. Mm-hmm. As equal. And so, no, don't treat me different than anybody else. Just give me the opportunity to compete. And that's equality. And we, we're not doing that. And we and I, I'm, I'm really glad that we got rid of uh, affirmative action. I think it's, it's a form of racism. And, and uh, a lot of uh, Asian people who, for cultural reasons, I guess, they study more and, uh, and they're catching, they caught the short end of the stick mm-hmm. when it came to that. And so now we have, um, we've gone the opposite way and it's really, we've gone uh, back into racism. And I've heard all the arguments saying that, uh, you know, if it's not, you all white people are racist or it's not racism if it's the other way. Mm-hmm. And and uh, if you favor somebody because of the, or uh, or disfavor them because of the color of their skin, it's racist. It's, it's, it's a... It's, and how, yeah, how can you change racism. that? If somebody is a, at heart, they really um, don't like certain race, right? Like, h- how are you going to regulate that? Um, well, I... That's a great question. Uh, it depends on uh, how are you doing. First of all, I think it's it's a it's a it's a human racism is a human condition of and that reflects the fallenness of mankind. Mm-hmm. So we all are flawed, and some people's law is whatever racism, uh, and uh, and uh, no, it's not right. It's a sin. I think yeah to to do that. So um, I think you can regulate it to a certain degree, uh, you know, in, in government and things like that. It's hard to um, more difficult when you're talking about somebody's private business and and how they treat their private business. Mm-hmm. But I think also that um, if I think people are pretty smart in some sense, maybe I give them too much credit. I don't know, but <laughs> I think that people are pretty smart and they and and they they know when they're being treated fair or not by mm-hmm. a business or or things like that. Now, there's some people also who. They see races and everything. Hey, you looked at me too long there, Paul. I think you've got a racist streak in you. You looked at me and everything is, you can find it in everything. And that's the problem I think we're at right now where uh, racism is in everything. You look at this lady, Claudine Gay, over at Harvard, um, how uh, she was put in that position. And in my opinion, uh, the case is that she should have never even been in that position of running Harvard. She didn't have the qualifications. And, um, uh, and a lot of people cried racism when she asked, they asked her to step down as the president of Harvard university. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you, yes, yes. I, oh yeah. So a lot of people called racism <clears throat> and, uh, and somebody aptly pointed out, I think rightly so that no, you got the job because of racism, <laughs> <laughs> which I totally agree with. I mean, she hadn't written, she plagiarized so much. And, and, uh, that, you know, she's still teaching them African-American studies at, at Harvard Mm -hmm. and making almost a million dollars a year salary. So imagine sitting in her class, you're tasked to do a paper and you toil for weeks all night, staying up all night to get your paper in time, in time to a teacher who plays (laughs) right. everything just about 
Well, now they have ChatGPT, so uh, they, yeah, 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 well, yeah, don't, you know? yeah. Oh boy, you really. <laughs> All right, James. So, so as we land the plane, um, yes, sir. Uh, this uh, this podcast call is called the greatest story. Yes, and my thought behind naming it like this was, uh, you know, I thought about sometimes. You know, when we are growing up, we read stories, we are being told certain stories. And then there are certain stories that we tell ourselves that can either um, get us in the right trajectory, upward or downward. And sometimes a bad philosophy, like the the women's rights, right? Like there's so many women that bought into that philosophy and then, um, you know, they're 55, 60, lonely by themselves, no kids, realized, well, it's already too late. Yeah. Um, so can you, do you have a story or maybe a couple stories that something that really moved you? I know you told me about the book that you found, yeah. uh, at the, at the bookstore yeah. uh, that really changed your life. Is there a story that really had a, a, a huge impact in your life? Ooh, boy, there's so many, um, um, uh, true story or stories in general that I've read about. No, true story for you, particularly uh, something so that happened. I'll, I'll, I'll give you one that I think uh, kind of uh, defines a lot of um, about persistence about me. Uh, so uh, I told you about when I was start working in the gym. Yeah, uh, I didn't know diddly squat about sales. I was horrible. I was getting circles ran around me by these other guys outselling memberships. At any rate, uh, my manager one day I was dragging in the bottom and uh, of, of sales. I was working my butt off, but I was just wasn't getting sales. So he pulls me in the office one day and he says, James, um, you're not doing too well. He says, so um, you, I'm giving you about, I'm giving you two weeks. You got to sell X amount of memberships in these two weeks. Ross, I'm going to have to let you go. Okay. So, I work all day for the next two weeks. End of that two weeks, I'm not even close. I'm not even in the neighborhood. And so we, the gym wasn't open on Saturday. So Saturday night, I'm thinking, hey, he's going to let me go. And so we had to clean up the gym and put all the weights away at the end of the night. So we put everything away. And I said, you're going to let me go now? And I'm like, so he's okay, fellas. Have a good weekend. See you on Monday. He didn't let me go. He says, I'm coming back in Monday. So Monday, walk in. We had a, got everything ready for the gym to open up. Sat down, had a little sales meeting around his desk. He said, okay, fellas, let's let the, the members in. They're out there waiting. Let's go. I'm like, oh, okay. He's not going to let me go. Okay. I work all day. Sold nothing. End of the day. Okay, fellas, see you tomorrow. I'm like, well, you didn't let me go. I'm coming to work tomorrow. This went on for like five days. Every day. I says, came in on my off day. Worked all day. 11 hours, whatever it was. Hardly anything. And all of a sudden, that Friday, we used to give out what they call guest passes. Mm -hmm. Like their friends in. We'd work, give them a workout, train them, and then they would come back in. So that Friday, about four or five sales. Saturday, about four or five sales. And then they just start pouring in. They just start pouring in. And I tell people that because I worked my way up to be a manager in that company. 
And I used to tell people, I says, all I had to do was sleep in for one day and it would have been over. The irony of it is I ended up become, becoming my manager's boss. The other crazy thing, this was very uncomfortable because he trained me and everything. Several years later, I had to let him go. And that was really, really hard. But I don't, I didn't do it for revenge. It was just, it was just one of those things uh, mm -hmm. where they put me over him and he wasn't really the same guy, great guy. But um, I always talk about persistence. And I says, those, that's the kind of drive and persistence you must have and that you don't quit in the face. If you have a dream, you do not quit. You do not quit. You do not quit. It's like you keep battling. And there's, I, again, at this point, I read the book and I knew one of the principles of that book is I will persist until I succeed. I'll never give up. And so that was what drove me. But um, um, I say, all it would have taken is one, one day where I said, you know what? I'm not going in. I'm going to sleep in. And I think that's kind of rare today. And uh, I run into it sometimes. And when I see people with that, I just, I, I, I love them. I go like, I say, your attitude is so refreshing to me. I mean, I have a goal right now. Uh, and that is to become the best 65-year-old baseball player in the country. Oh, wow. Yeah, I still play that's, baseball. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I love it. to do that, I have to play in a national championship was coming up, uh, in, which I, I was a part of a winning team in 2021, which got me this uh, World Series ring. It's an amateur World Series ring. Wow. But, so that's one of my goals is to become the best 65-year-old baseball player in the country in this tournament that I have to play nationally coming up in November. So that is amazing. Uh, I think you got to have wow. goals. Uh, and those goals drove me. I said, I didn't want a life of poverty. I didn't want a life of like what I grew up in. That drove me. And, uh, you know, so I read all kinds of books. I took, when I decided I was going to be the greatest salesman in the world, I was going to be the best at what I did. Uh, I went to seminars. I read books. I have a book collection today. I'm always reading something, always reading something. And I tell people, I says, you know what? If you dedicate yourself, well, first of all, let me back up for a second. Things got even better when I put God first in my life. I still hit bumps, absolutely, but I can deal with the bumps because you know what? Um, uh, 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 I, I see the end. I, 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 I have the end in sight. I know, God forbid, anything happens to me, I know where I'm going. I know exactly where I'm going. So I would say that is one of the stories that probably um, I look back on and think, hey, uh, uh, look at all the people's. I like you know. You've seen the movie. It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, it's a. It's oh, that's. Oh, we just watched it uh, this oh, Christmas. Yes, we, uh, I can. I can watch it a million times. Oh my god. Anyway, yes. uh, they used to make great movies. Yes, <laughs> uh, I, I think about that movie, and I think about, um, and and I think sometimes it's one of those things where, and and I I don't say this to brag on myself, but. Uh, I think God used me to touch a lot of people's lives. I really believe that. And, uh, and, and sometimes you don't know it until somebody whose lives you touch, tell them, tell, tell you, yeah. tell me. And I go like, I even had one of my ex-workers, a guy I used to work with actually just a couple of years ago. He said, he goes, we're, we talking, we hadn't talked in a couple of years. He said, James, you're the one who taught me this and taught me this and taught me this. I said, really? I had that big of an impact on you? He said, yeah. He said, you did, man. He says, uh, 
we only worked with each other for about a year, you know, and I, and, and so I, apparently I left some things with him that, you know, uh, it was a horrible job, by the way, <laughs> I won't name the company, but it was a horrible job, but it was, it was, uh, 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 but apparently something good came out of it and God can cause something good to come out of anything. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, how much time we got? Well, if you want to share something else, please do. Um, I'll, I'll share one more. This is not a story about me, but it's a story that I, I, I read in a book called Unstoppable. If you haven't read it, this is one particular story in there. It's a true story that every time I tell it uh, or I read it, it's, it not only inspires me, but it gets, it, 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 it might get me choked up, so bear with me for a second. Okay. Uh, do you know who's the author? Her name is Cynthia Kersey. K-E-R-S-E-Y. Okay. It's 45 stories in the book about people who uh, had what they call a un what she defines as an unstoppable spirit and people who done amazing things that were overcoming insurmountable obstacles that we don't even dream of. Mm -hmm. And there's one particular one about a uh, a, a little boy, a boy in Africa named Lexan Kaira. It's a true story on the 50s. And uh, he had missionaries coming over to Africa and he lived in a poor, very poor village and people made excuses for poverty and things like that. And uh, he he um, um, got inspired by some of the missionaries that were coming over to his village. And so he had read stories about Booker T. Washington and a lot of the greats. And uh, he decided when he was 16 or 17, he didn't even know his age because he didn't have a, so, uh, uh, you know, a birth certificate or anything like that. But he decided that he wanted to be like one of these, like Booker T. Washington. And he wanted to, to be and make an impact on society. He had to come to America to get a first rate education. To get to America, he had to cross over 2000 miles walking and then get plane fare. And so he decided that he was gonna leave home and he was gonna walk. And so he started walking uh, and uh, after a month, he, I think he had went about uh, uh, 30, 30 miles or something like that. He got sick. He got, uh, he had some people had to take a man, a village took a man and nursing back to health. He would work, get a little job in the town and he'd walk further. It took him two years. He walked to, uh, he, he walked, I think it was to Egypt. He walked all the way to Egypt from his, his, his country, 2000 mm -hmm. miles. But he would, it would took him a while. He would stop, he would write letters. He would get a little job busting tables or whatever, write letters to schools in America. He saw this one school. He really liked it. Now, when he got to Cairo, he didn't know how he was going to get to America. He had no plane fare. He didn't have anything. He had, by the way, he had reached out to the missionaries and they helped get him his birth certificate and some other things. But unbeknownst to him, see, I'm starting to get choked up. The first school he wrote, because he had a budget, he was sending, this first school he wrote, the students heard about his story. They raised money, got his airfare. So he came over, got his education, became a PhD. He's passed away now. But how do you walk 2,000 miles? All these strange villages, you don't know them. And at what point do we give up? <laughs> you know, we get a, we get a hangnail and we're like ready to go home and jump back in bed. I mean, wow. you talking about, I read that. You could tell I'm getting choked up by it. That. that story moves me every single That's time. Wow. 
it's like we don't know how good we have it. Even under all this, these things we're dealing with right now. Yes. The yes. obstacles. Can you imagine 2,000 miles? He didn't know how he was going to get to America once he got to Cairo. Wow. But these, these other, God put other forces in the action mm -hmm. that caused them to make it happen and finish his journey for him or completed a big part of his journey. But if he would have stopped at any point, he doesn't yes. live out the 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 dream that God put in his in, in his heart and in his wow. mind and in his soul. Yeah, that's but it, it, it's this is a lot of stories for whatever reason that story just I go like oh my god I says I don't have anything to complain about. Yeah, this guy slept that's outside amazing. underneath the stars on that's his it. journey. It's called the Walking Ulysses, is what they name it in the book. I, I will check out the book. That's, yeah. So, so, wow. so, yeah. So that's that's those kind of things really awesome. Um, they they move me. So, well, thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, James. How can people follow you? Where can they uh, look you up? Um, I would say the best way is to. Um, I don't have a website or anything like that yet. So, uh, so I'm sorry. I don't. I don't have. Uh, I haven't built all that stuff. And I would say the best way is to, to pop me a quick email. I'm on Facebook as James Jenkins. Uh, under my um, the moniker, if you want to follow me on there, it says deplorable Easter worshiper and violator of community standards because there's several James Jenkins you'll see on Facebook. Okay. Um, that's probably the best place if you want to email me. I'm JJ Minota, like the old cameras at hotmail.com. So okay. I'm pretty simple, straightforward. I love to talk to people and make friends everywhere I go, just like we did. Thank you and, so uh, much this for this. It's been uh, uh, a pleasure for you to wind me up and let me... <laughs> Let me go. James, it's an honor for me. Thank you so oh, much. Man. Thank I you. appreciate it.